studs up, horns out. Nobody comes after teams harder than New York Red Bulls. An MLS original, a playoff perennial. Their name is synonymous with pressure. Awkward bounce here, volley pass, Fabio, he shoots, he scores! Out of nothing! In the 37th minute, Red Bulls have charged in front. Nashville SC has returned from international break to see its unbeaten run broken. After seven matches, they drop their eight. Those are the highlights and primarily lowlights from Nashville SC's first loss of the season, 2-0 in Harrison, New Jersey, to New York Red Bulls, courtesy of ESPN 94.9. Welcome to the Club & Country Podcast, the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone else in their respective disciplines. I'm Nashville SC broadcaster Wes Bowling. And I am Tim Sullivan, the proprietor, owner, operator, editor, writer of ClubCountryUSA.com. And as of Saturday morning, the most tired person on the Nashville SC beat for sure yeah i think maybe your fatigue rivaled that of some of the players out there after the, uh, the <laughs> or maybe it was only surpassed by the uh, the players after the train trip back up and back from uh what from baltimore up to new yep. jersey and you did the the mm-hmm. return voyage that night yeah that was maybe a, a misstep from me my options were to leave at like 11 which obviously was right after the game was not going to happen or 3 13 a.m oh no which i went for and uh was very tired all day i guess midnight train to <laughs> maryland doesn't quite have the same <laughs> ring to it three man three in the morning that's brutal like lots of time to write the game story but also yeah, sleep I, in ended a train up, station. I ended up walking around newark new jersey at two in the morning which probably is not recommended i was gonna say is that recommended <laughs> yeah. i don't know yeah, probably not recommended but i could not just sit there and, and do that so hey i uh, eventually got stuff done this afternoon <laughs> so you saw a side of newark that not many people get to see and we all saw a side of nashville soccer club that no one else has seen this year which is the losing side after the two nil setback their first of the season by the way before we get any further thanks to moon taxi for the music at the beginning and the end of the show it was inarguably tim i think the least effective attacking match of the year they were defensive lapses it combines some of the struggles we've seen from this club in in flashes into a 90 minute display that is going to happen sometimes in major league soccer and nashville found it just tough to get things done against red bulls yeah absolutely and that's what New York Red Bulls want to do. That is what the entire Red Bull organization wants to do. They don't necessarily want to beat you with the beautiful game, but they want to make it very difficult for you to beat them. Um, Personal absences for NSC made things tougher, but they really just didn't have a ton of answers for that Red Bull press and put up a meager offensive performance because of it. And then when you have cracks in the defense that also appear in the same game, it's just one of those nights in Harrison, New Jersey. Nashville loses its undefeated status and drops to 10th in the East as of recording time, but tied on points with 7th place in YCFC. Of course, at this early juncture, the playoff line itself, nice to be above, but but things are tight and so now begins a vital stretch as teams will begin to separate themselves Tim and Nashville SC has an opportunity with five consecutive home games coming up to do just that yeah after this game obviously first loss of the year I'll say the same thing that I've said before which is the distinction of being undefeated is not nearly as important as what the points tally on the table says and you mentioned it there it says tied for seventh but currently in 10th place in the Eastern Conference the issue is uh, you know, when you've dropped those points at home, you can't afford to have stinkers on the road, too. And that's something that Nashville is really going to have to make up with these five straight home games. And so today we'll spend a little bit of time on the loss. But then we have things to look forward to, including the first midweek match of the year. So some of you might even be listening to this after the Toronto match. If you are, tell us how it went and we'll try to, to drop in some uh, some ESP here. Uh, but uh, we will have some observations from Nashville SC's first loss. And then I thought it would be interesting to take a look at some some gold nuggets today that compare Nashville's home form and its road form in its brief history. We know this has been a team that's been pretty bright at home this season, and we're not going to discount the two goals they scored late against Atlanta United, but that was really the only attacking flourish that it has shown in its three road matches. So let's extrapolate that then and, and include last year as well and, and compare what this team is at home versus what it is away from Nissan Stadium and then see if the eye test matches the stats that we're seeing on the paper. And then we'll take a glance at the two upcoming opponents before moving on to a really in-depth interview with Paul Vance. He's managing editor of Mount Royal Soccer, the best accent that we've had probably on this podcast, with apologies to Tony Husband, who's also wonderful from Britain. The Northern Irishman, Paul Vance, covers not just Montreal, but also Euros. He's been all over the globe to watch and cover soccer, and he's going to touch a bit on Toronto as well, so he'll hit on both of Nashville SC's opponents. And then, Tim, we will embrace consensus with a question I think
think a lot of folks are asking around Nashville. How many points does NSC need to get from this vital five-match homestand? They don't have to go on the road again uh, for 33 days from that New York Red Bulls loss until their next trip. How crucial are these matches? And we'll put some numbers to that into the mailbag with some questions about NSC's young talent. And then outside in, a new MLS-driven league was announced this week. It'll add to the U.S. Soccer Pyramid. Could it have an impact on Nashville SC? As you can see, it is an absolutely loaded show. And so as the insects fly around Tim at his outdoor recording location, the questions are flying around as well. Let's get to them in our early shout. Played down to McCarty. Nashville trying to gather some numbers here and unfurl the attack. Ball played to the middle of the pitch. Sapong. Sapong is in. Sapong shoots. Sapong scores. Was the flag up? It was. A late flag from the assistant referee negates what would have been a beautiful combination for Nashville's equalizing goal. So that is one of Nashville's best chances against New York Red Bulls. Play-by-play courtesy of me and uh, broadcast audio courtesy of ESPN 94.9. Nashville drops its first match New York Red Bulls. First time they've been outshot this season as they really never established that attacking cohesion against New York Red Bulls press. Yeah, and that's something, as I mentioned in the intro, is is what Red Bull does. That's how they want to beat you. Um, Nashville, I think their game plan going in was to let the Red Bulls possess because the Red Bulls do not want to possess. They want to hit you on the counter when they turn you over or hit you out, hit you in your own end. When you turn it over Nashville's plan was to kind of let them have the ball and see what they could do with it. The answer was not a whole lot for a while, but goals change games as we've heard uh, before. And Gary Smith said it um, on earlier Monday afternoon when we spoke with him. And that's exactly what happened in this one. Fourth time Nashville's faced a two nil deficit. But the first time they didn't salvage a result. And it's always going to be tougher to come back against a team like Red Bulls, who wants to jump on you like the mosquitoes that are swarming you on your patio right now. Yeah, again, that's what they want to do. They want to get a lead. And then um, whereas a lot of teams are going to call off the dogs when that happens, that's when Red Bull starts to lick their chops a little bit and says, okay, this is exactly where we wanted to have this team at this point. We'll turn up the pressure. They won't be able to possess. They won't be able to get it where they want to get it. And that's exactly what happened. Nashville did have a couple late chances. Um, including the one that we listened to at the top of the section that uh, was ultimately deemed offsides. But it, it's the sort of situation where you eventually play into Red Bull's game that way. Matt Doyle had uh, maybe a polarizing, a strong take on MLSsoccer.com. He's known for those strong takes, the armchair analyst, as he is known uh, by Major League Soccer. He says, quote, the Red Bulls are good and tough. Nashville are not. And that's a change because last year's Nashville team didn't give up route one goals. They're just a little bit softer this year. And while this was their first loss of the season, that softness has cost them a bunch of points. There's some polarizing language in that, certainly. But do you think it's a fair assessment? No, I know you're shocked. (laughs) And one of these days we'll get him on here and we'll ask about (laughs) some of these things. But is it is it a fair assessment or do you think it maybe goes too far? Yeah, as you mentioned, there's a little bit of hyperbolic language in there. But there is something to be said for it. We didn't see Nashville give up. Um, Not necessarily as much in this game. Maybe the second goal is a good example of it, but they didn't give up easy goals last year. And we've seen it all too frequently this year, whether that's something that's relatively fluky, like goals against Cincinnati and Montreal, where where those are not going to be replicated by those teams again. But we've also seen it in other games too. The the first Atlanta goal um, in the previous game before the international break was one that certainly was an incredible individual play by two players, uh, Marcelino Moreno and Miles Robinson, But Nashville wasn't giving up that sort of goal last year. So it is something that, you know, with the personnel mostly the same, they're going to really have to lock it down and maybe get back to some of the fundamentals that we saw from them last year. I think Nashville SC at halftime probably looked back at that Fabio goal. They looked at the score line and they said, I can't believe it's not better. I think that's uh, something I would have rather you not said. Corny Dad FC strikes again. CDFC. Yeah, and I think that was a, a, I mean, a worldie is a strong word, but but another stunning strike in Nashville. Yeah, some of those. I mean, the second goal, though, definitely a little softer. Yeah, and again, a volley that rings the far post, um, smooth as butter. I'll say it. <laughs> but, but yeah, the, the second goal, you see a cross-field ball. And in that situation last year, you have Nashville stepping in and doing some interrupting. For whatever reason, Kyle Duncan was just given sort of all the room in the world that he wanted to meander to a good shooting position. He found that shooting position and he took his opportunity. Last year's national team doesn't give up that goal, most likely. Yeah, and I think before we start talking about whether this defense is starting to experience some diminishing marginal 
utility. And then we'll stop on the butter puns. Uh, I, I think we, we do have to, of course, insert the qualifier that this was the first match back from international break. And while some clubs might be fresher after that, uh, Nashville had some knocks coming in. They obviously, you know, had guys like Walker, who'd been on the road earlier that week. Alistair Johnston was pulled early, I think probably because he'd played 390s for Canada. And uh, not the freshest Nashville SC team. But taking away that qualifier for a moment... Every team is going to be dealing with some of those issues. Christian Casares was out for Red Bulls, for instance, because he's down in Venezuela. Uh, so big absences, though, for Nashville SC in the loss. Yonder Cadiz up top obviously wasn't there. Anibal Godoy is healthy, by the way. He just had some travel challenges that kept him from playing in that New York match. But who was the bigger absence, uh, do you think, between those two guys, Cadiz and Godoy? And, and do you see a need for roster reinforcements in either of those spots? Each of them was a big absence in their own way. Obviously, we've talked about how Nashville couldn't really possess in midfield if you uh, replace Matt LaGrasa, who is somebody that that we think is a very good player and obviously appreciate what he's done for this club over the past four years. Uh, with Anibal Godoy, who's a guy who's who's been a best 11 caliber player at, t- at points in his career, there's going to be an upgrade. You're going to be able to possess the ball better. But at the same time, John Ducati, is, if you have him, there's a little bit more of an opportunity to go route one over the top, which is kind of what you have to do if you can't possess the ball in midfield against this Red Bull team. And Nashville really couldn't do it. CJ Sapong battled and battled and battled against some of those center backs for Red Bulls. But the technical ability to bring the ball down and win those battles and maybe a little bit of the speed that Cadiz probably has on him weren't there. So each of them played a role. And and honestly, the fact that those are the two guys who were missing, because if you have one, you don't need the other as much. And the fact that they didn't have either of them, their absences were uh, complimentary, but complimentary to the Red Bulls, not to Nashville SC. This club is so deep in theory uh, up top. Mm-hmm. They only had two strikers available of the five on the roster versus New York with Yonder Cadiz out with Rios and Baji hurt Don Lottie, even, you know, still working his way back in, hasn't played yet uh, this season until he was able to, to get in there late. I mean, is it time for a new body up top? Is it time for an Ake Loba to come in? Do you think that's a direction this club, um, there have been transfer rumors about this, but do you think this is a, perhaps a sooner rather than later proposition? Yeah, it's something that, you know, there have been credible rumblings about for a while now. And, and when there are credible rumblings, there's a reason there are credible rumblings. I think um, whether it's Ake Loba or Michael Estrada at this point, it seems like Ake Loba, the Ivorian rather than Estrada, the Ecuadorian, seems more likely at this point. And they're very different types of players. Lo- Loba is much more of a, a goal getter type, kind of that second striker type a little bit. Um, you could possibly call him a poor man's Joseph Martinez in a lot of ways, hmm. whereas Estrada is kind of your big target number nine kind of a, a like-for-like replacement with maybe a little bit more technical ability than a guy like CJ Sapong. And it sounds like I'm slamming Sapong's technical ability. That is not at all my intent. He's a very good player. But um, there's there's a reason that that this guy is is kind of a $9 million player, 6 to $9 million player, and, and Sapong is not that. And it's because there is a little bit more technical ability. I think Nashville wants to make a reinforcement at that striker position, regardless of of Jean Dercati's future with this program. I think it's something that um, an additional body, you see the reason why an additional body is needed. If there's an injury or two at the position, you need more depth. And, and I think Nashville has learned that the hard way uh, Friday evening in Harrison. Yeah, Nashville can expect to see Godoy, Leal, Zerman, and Johnston get called into international duty. You were at the match, so I think it, I'd be remiss not to ask you. Any observations in person that a TV viewer or radio listener might not have noticed other than the beauty of Newark, New Jersey at two in the morning? Yeah, I think a really interesting one is the, the press box at Red Bull Arena is is four rows back off the field, open air. It's an incredible position to watch a game. It is not an incredible position necessarily to analyze a game. But the most interesting thing that, that nobody else would have gotten to see is on the first Red Bulls goal, there was a free kick in, in Red Bull territory, which was ultimately the hockey assist on that goal. Mm-hmm. And CJ Sapong keeps moving the ball back to – where the foul occurred to he was accurately moving the ball back eventually the center official Nima Sagafi who's a very good official Red Bull fans were just dragging him during the game I did not think it was a particularly poorly officiated game at all eventually he just turns and says CJ what the expletive are you doing and CJ kind of understands and and says okay I gotta stop doing this but if the ball was moved back five ten yards where it was supposed to be maybe it doesn't end up in a goal either so um obviously there's all those sorts of tiny little gamesmanship things here and there over the course of a game but that was one that um coincidentally happened to just strike Nashville in the worst way uh, interesting observation and another example of why you should listen to this show and visit clubcountryusa.com because Tim is there when he can be there and has traveled two more road matches for uh, NSC coverage in USL and in MLS than 
than anybody else. Let's get on to our gold nuggets now, where we're going to put numbers behind narratives and try to, to figure out if what we think is actually true. And the hypothesis that we want to test today is that Nashville is a more assertive, more successful team at home than on the road. The records would certainly indicate that. Nashville 7, 1, and 8. So that's results in 15 of 16 at home since returning from the pandemic last year. That's 1.8 points per match. On the road, 5, 6, and 5. Just 1.25 points per contest. Tim, some of that, of course, is to be expected in a league where the variance between home and road is so vast. Yeah, and I think there, there are significant home road effects in that. Uh, I just crunched the numbers real quick while you're reading that stat. And home teams score an average of 1.46 goals per game this season. Away teams, 0.98 goals per game. So the average home team is is winning by almost half of a goal. Um, in the expected goals department, it's 1.6 for home teams to 1.24 for away teams. So not only do home teams generate more, but they're actually converting at a slightly better clip. So it is expected that that happens. But when you have a team like Nashville that's up right up near the top of of the expected goals table they're the only team that has a the significant amount of home field advantage in xg terms that uh, any of these top teams too uh, I have them as the number five team in adjusted expected goals in the league all the other members of the top six are actually negative in terms of home field advantage and that's just wow. because they're good no matter where they are it's not because they're bad at home Nashville right. is, is playing so much better at Nissan Stadium this year than they are on the road and that's some of that is sample size. They've only played a couple games and they're not against the easiest opposition to play. But certainly there is something to be said for um, it's time. It's time to step it up and, and win these games at home. If you're going to be a better team at home, you need to get the results out of it. So then looking again at your average goal scored home versus away, you mentioned 1.46 per game is the MLS average national tracking with that 1.4 per match since Again, returning from the pandemic. On the road, they're a little behind. I think you said close to one per match mm -hmm. for road teams. Nashville at 0.8 per match. So behind just a little bit there. And then getting into XG a little bit, Nashville nearly double the expected goals at home this year uh, than, than on the road. And again, part of that is competition. Part of it could be small sample size. And part of it, Tim, is that Nashville was chasing the game. But do you see that vast of a difference between Nashville's mentality at home versus the road? Are these numbers telling us the full story? Yeah, I think there's something to be said for mentality. I think Gary Smith is one of the more open coaches in MLS when it comes to saying, hey, when we're on the road, uh, it's not necessarily what we want to do, but we need to play a certain brand of game to make sure we don't get smacked around a little bit. And at times, that's obviously paid, played to Nashville's advantage. They were uh, one of very few teams to win at Orlando last year. They obviously managed to come back and get a result at Atlanta this year. But at the same time, when you have a result like Friday evenings, it can be kind of attributed to some of that a little bit as well, playing, um, you know, playing into the hands of the opposition because it's the opposition's home stadium. What surprised me was looking at last year's XG comparison. Nashville with 1.06 expected goals per match at home. 1.01 on the road. Pretty tight. You could almost call those bang on even, uh, despite the fact that Nashville ended up scoring 16 times at home and 11 on the road. An issue perhaps with uh, with you know finishing composure. Again, a small sample size in one season. I know you know it's it's dangerous to worship the altar of XG, but but does that Never. discrepancy last year <laughs> does that discrepancy last year surprise you a little bit? A little bit. Some of that can also be be home road splits. Um, the teams that you play on the road include Columbus. That when when you play at Columbus, they were a team that famously overachieved their XG, um, you know, in both ends of the pitch, wherever they were last year. So, um, when when you play a team that has the goalkeeping that they had last year, you know, there are slight factors when you only a 23 game regular season it really does kind of skew some of the numbers in those regards too and then finally looking at, at shots just this season nashville 18 shots per match at home to 11 on the road 7.8 shots on target per contest at nissan stadium three away from home so if if you want to look just at this contrast and you look at the fact that nashville has five home matches coming up in a row doesn't have to go on the road again for a month i think there's reason tim to be somewhat optimistic about the stretch ahead yeah and i think what you just said plays such a huge role in it it's about converting if they can convert at the rate that they should uh this is a team that should have a very good stretch of results here with a good stretch of home games coming up so next up is the first two match week of the season a pair of canadian teams come up 
uh, funny enough, <laughs> to Nashville because they're both based in Florida. And if you don't know that story, uh, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, all based in temporary locations. Their families are with them in most cases, and uh, they are not able to cross the border into Canada. There are players on each of these teams who play for Toronto, play for Montreal, who've never been to their home cities as a member of that team. So first up is Toronto Wednesday, losers of three straight, playing without a home. They've conceded the second most goals in MLS have the second fewest successful tackles, all that with having, Tim, the second highest payroll in Major League Soccer. Transition pains under new manager Chris Armas, or do you think it's a sign of an impending collapse? Yeah, I don't know if impending is, is the right qualifier to use there because this team is not performing at the level that it performed at last year. I think the, the collapse might be upon us. Hmm. Now that said, there's a change in generation that's clearly cycling out. Josie has not even been training with the team lately. He's one of those guys making a ton of money. Uh, Michael Bradley is is uh, still a solid MLS player, but uh, a Chris Armas style of game is probably not a, a Tim-aged Michael Bradley uh, style of game that he's ready to play anymore. They're not really only kind of a how far can Alejandro Pizuelo and Jefferson Soteldo take us sort of team, but they're kind of trending in that direction. And again, the light at the end of the tunnel might be with Chris Armas's Red Bull pedigree, if some of these older guys begin to kind of cycle out, if you replace a Josie Altador with a guy like Io Akinola as a, as a full-time thing, which is obviously happening if Josie's not training with the team right now, you're starting to see a personnel set that fits the head coach, and, and there are going to be transition pains along the way, and they're feeling those right now. And their hope has to be that they're only going to last at the beginning of the season, not for the entire year. How much, though, should the head coach try to fit the personnel? I mean, most coaching transitions take place because of underperformance. In this case, Greg Vandy overachieved for years and took the LA Galaxy job. And Chris Armas came in and, and did instill this Red Bull you know, pressing mentality. It's not identical to what Red Bulls do. It's part of the reason he got booted out of New York was that he was trying to do something just a little bit different and it didn't quite mm-hmm. come off do you think he's he's you know overreached a little bit and trying to put too much of his own system in or can you fault a guy for coming in and saying i've got veterans who should be adaptable enough to roll with this and they just maybe haven't been it's probably more the latter when you look at a, again a guy like michael bradley either he can get the job done in chris Armis's system or he probably can't get the job done in anything but a system specifically designed around what he can still do with there are still aspects of his game that are very strong his long diagonal passing um his ability to to win uh tackles on the ball his foot speed isn't there that's not going to work for chris armas but it's also not going to work in the vast majority of systems unless they're built around protecting a holding midfielder like he is and i don't think most coaches are going to come in and say this is our guy we must stick with him uh, we must do what is good for him. They're going to try and transition as much as they can. And, and if Bradley can't make that transition with them, that's probably a big part of what the issue is, I'd say. Moving on to Montreal, the Saturday opponent, uh, and we'll get deeper into Montreal here in a moment with Paul Vance, who covers the club day in and day out. The artists formerly known as Impact, CF Montreal, have scored just four goals since the draw with Nashville at Nissan Stadium, in which they scored two in the first 42 minutes. But they could still be as high as fourth place when things kick off Saturday. How might you expect match two to differ from match one when Montreal got ahead pretty early and Nashville was was chasing things the whole way? Yeah, we've seen from the instant Gary Smith set foot into Davidson County that there was one truism about his teams, and that's he does not want to get beaten the same way by the same team twice. Of course, neither Montreal goal in the opener was particularly replicable anyway, so maybe they don't have to do a whole lot to accomplish uh, making sure that they don't get beaten in the same way, but Gary Smith will certainly want to survive the first 20 minutes. We saw that sort of game plan. The the game immediately after that Montreal draw, he, he wanted to make sure his team didn't get beaten in 20 minutes. He's going to do that, you know, times 10 against Montreal the second time around. But from there, if Nashville escapes those 20 minutes on skate, I think you'll see a pretty expansive philosophy. He's going to want to put some goals on them because he experienced that his team was probably the better team on the day and can mm-hmm. put goals on this Montreal side. If you had to pick one win that was more likely, is it against a Toronto team that's probably more talented but reeling right now? Or a Montreal team that has been scrappy uh, but not riding a great run of form themselves? I could see the Montreal game ending up in, in one of those weird draws like a zero zero or one one draw whereas the toronto game is probably one the way toronto's been playing lately you really feel like you have to win that one well let's hear what alistair johnston has to say he has been playing alongside numerous toronto and montreal players as part of the canadian national team and says there was some banter over the international break yeah i mean there was a lot of smack talk going on don't get it twisted i was i was pretty happy going in there saying we were undefeated no matter what the record was there was no l's in the column at that point so that was kind of fun going with that they were all joking you guys would be the invincibles that potentially didn't make the playoffs i'm not sure that's ever happened before 
um, which was good fun. But no, yeah, there's definitely been some smack talk. We've all been excited and looking forward to playing each other. Same with the Montreal guys. We all know that we're we're going to have a lot of a, a lot of games against each other coming up, um, especially with both of us being in the Eastern Conference and playing each other three times this year. So we've all been excited for that. Um, but no, yeah, there's definitely been some good smack talk, and uh, we'll see if we can both sides can back it up on Wednesday. So a meaningful game for Alistair Johnston playing against so many folks he knows well and a meaningful week for Nashville Soccer Club, Toronto and Montreal. Let's get into that second opponent in more depth. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of going on a podcast called The Ball is Round up in Montreal and talking with Paul Vance, Hadi Raphael, Eve, and so many great folks up there. Been a regular listener ever since, even when they're not talking about Nashville, because these guys have compelling insight. And so we had to get Paul on this show to talk about Montreal today. If you think you know a little bit about Montreal after that first match, you do. And we've talked about them at length as well. But Paul's going to take you to that next level. So enjoy the conversation now between myself and Paul Vance. Well, now we're pleased to speak with the guru of all things soccer in Montreal and around the world, Paul Vance. Paul is managing editor of Mount Royal Soccer, a Vox Media website that covers CF Montreal and the beautiful game in Quebec and far beyond the Quebecois borders. Paul hails from Northern Ireland and is a self-professed lifelong student of soccer. And get this, he's attended five World Cups four Champions League finals, two European championships, and watched football in spots as diverse as South Africa, Brazil, Ukraine, and many countries in Western Europe. So other than that, Paul, you really don't know much about soccer. I know nothing about the game, <laughs> but it's nice to be on your show. <laughs> well, it's a privilege to to have you. He's part of the Ball is Round podcast as well, and I was uh, pleased and privileged to be a guest uh, the last time Nashville played Montreal leading up to that match. And so I uh, certainly wanted to return the favor and, and get Paul's excellent insight as I've become a regular listener, Paul, um, of yours since that initial conversation. Uh, so let's, let's start then with what's changed Uh and maybe what has stayed the same about this Montreal team since these teams last met in, in match week two. How has this Montreal team evolved since Nashville fans last saw them play? It, it's probably more a case of, of stayed the same, actually. Uh, I think they've evolved a little bit. Um, you'll not really see any surprises when, when we play at the weekend because uh, Montreal are still basically playing the same 5-3-2 that uh, seems to be the trendy formation these days in football across the world. So 5-3-2 coming 3-5-2, if you like. Um, so, I mean, again, that's what you're going to see. I think that the players are a little bit more, um, the cohesion is better now. They know each other a little bit more. We still get some issues in, in, in scoring goals up front, but... Uh, every time we've had Mason Toy in the team, he's, he scored every game he's played in. So mm-hmm. he was out for three, four games, five games maybe with injury, and the goals kind of dried up. So hopefully with him back, um, you know, we're going to see the goals starting to flow a little bit more again. He's one of those strikers who is so raw and so talented that, that you can you can see the ability brimming, and Nashville fans saw it the hard way early in that match uh, in Music City. Um yeah, is yeah. he the is he the key to this attack? And are you surprised by by his emergence this year? Well, yeah, because simply, okay, arrived in difficult circumstances last year. To be fair to him, um, but he didn't show us anything that that would have um, given us anything in the way of encouragement. Uh, and and this this season, he scored a couple of goals in preseason, and then he went straight into the first game, scored, then scored against you guys, um, and then he went out injured and scored again then when he came back in his first game back against Chicago. So, yeah, it surprised us a little bit, um, but it surprised us in a good way, of course. Uh, and, and you're right, he is a little bit raw. He's still learning the game. I have this kind of, I feel bad about saying this because a striker's business is all about scoring goals. He doesn't do an awful lot uh, apart from apart from the goals he scored. He hasn't really contributed greatly, but he does help, of course, the team keep its shape. And uh, you know what? Give me a goal a game any day, and it doesn't matter if he doesn't do anything else. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, his goal and the other one scored in that first half against Nashville put the boys in gold in the back foot. Nashville, of course, ended up with the draw. But since then, this club has only scored four goals in the six matches yeah. since that meeting. Is it regression to the mean? I mean, Montreal did outperform expected goals in those first two matches against Toronto and, and Nashville. It scored six. I think XG had it a little bit closer to two. Um, or do you think it points to maybe some issues that have emerged in the attack, other than, of course, you mentioned Toy being hurt? Yeah, I think Toy Toy being missing has been a, a big thing. Of course, we don't know if he, he'd have been the answer if he'd been there for all those games he was missing in. But 
Uh, Romel Kyoto is struggling a little bit for goals. Um, uh, he's only scored one this season. Um, although his general play is still good. Um, we've obviously had Bjorn Jonsson as well. He scored two against Inter Miami. Had a good game that night. Hasn't maybe looked like scoring apart from that. I still think there's there's um, there's some gelling that needs to happen with the guys up front. It's it's not quite there yet. And Wilfred Nancy has kind of changed the team around a little bit um, as, as regards the forward position. So um, I don't think it's completely settled down yet. Um, I think Toy being back is going to help a great deal. Um, and I think he's probably going to be the catalyst. But I, I also think that um, Kyoto's form will come back. And once he gets a goal, he'll probably get a few. And he's the type who can certainly strike uh, strike quick using his pace and his, his intelligence, as he is a, certainly an MLS veteran. Uh, yeah. For Nashville fans who are not familiar, obviously this Montreal club endured a challenging transition just weeks before the season when Thierry Henry announced his intention to go back home across the pond, and we can certainly understand the, the reasons for that to be with his family. Nonetheless, it left Montreal in a, in a tough situation. Wilfred Nancy comes in, a longtime fixture at the club, and... Uh, Eight matches into the season, what's the early verdict on the Nancy era? Does it feel like the team has been able to navigate this challenging transition pretty well, all things considered? Are there some some concerns, or do you think maybe he's outperformed expectations to date? Uh, I think he's probably bang on. Um, I, you know, a lot of people kind of back the, uh, the hire because he'd been at the club for so long and they all thought he, he deserved a chance. Um, yeah, there's been a few dissenting voices when when you get defeats along the line, but that that's always happens in Montreal. People tend not to see the big, big picture and they tend to take it on a week-by-week basis. Some people, not everyone. Um, but I think overall he's, he's, he's done well. I, I don't want to say steady the ship. It was a fairly steady ship anyway, but then there was an influx of players over the, over the, the close season and, and a lot of players left. So, so there was a bit of a, mas- a lot of massaging that needed to happen. And uh, I think he's actually done that well, despite a very interrupted and staggered preseason. Um, and of course, we started off well with a win and a draw. Uh, especially a win over Toronto, which which delighted the the, the fans. Sure. Um, so y- you know, I, I think when you look at the the basically what he's done so far with the team and and tried to blend all these new players together, the fact that we're sitting where we are, about sixth, seventh in in the East, um, is fairly encouraging. If we do win against DC on Wednesday night, we'll go up to fourth. So. I don't think there's anybody in Montreal will will complain about that. And I I think one other thing that I might say, perhaps being down in Florida this year um, through the pandemic rather than in New Jersey, because they had a very, very frustrating time in New Jersey. The club has really pushed the boat out to make everyone feel at home this this time around. Families have been down there with the players. Wilfred Nancy has been able to kind of work, weave his magic as well. And there seems to be an incredibly good harmony within the squad at the moment. So there is a bit of a feel-good factor there too. And tactically, I think there are so many questions about the rival club, Toronto FC, and whether it's going to be suitable for playing a summer in Florida. Guys who are not used to playing in, necessarily in that kind of heat, at least a lot of them, you know, the, the, the press slash possess is just exhausting and draining, and we've seen some questions with that. It feels like Montreal, on the other hand, is better set up tactically for the heat it's going to have to endure down in South Florida, the 5-3-2. I know it's going to be demanding on the wing backs, but by and large, it seems like a more reasonable setup for what is is to come here as the, as yeah. the heat rises. Yeah. Um, do you anticipate tactical adjustments this summer to try to compensate for that departure in climate, or do you feel like, hey, these are in-shape soccer players and we shouldn't necessarily have to, to adapt a tactical approach when they should be used to playing in heat anyway? Well, I think the point that you made about Toronto and their pressing game, it's probably not going to suit the conditions um, and, and they're going to have some problems, I think. But um, I think the way Montreal are set up, it probably suits the conditions. Now, what, I, what I'll say, absolutely, what we've seen so far, the games that have been afternoon kickoffs down in Florida, the pace has definitely been slower. That's why I'm very happy that the game in Wednesday night against DC is a, is a as a night game, mm-hmm. right? So, so those games tended to be better. The tempo's been, you know, a little bit um, more upbeat as well. So, um, 
I think Montreal, the way they're set up, is probably it's the best the best way to to handle these conditions with the five three two three five two. And I think as well, you're talking about the wing backs, and you're absolutely right. But the wing backs in the Montreal team are probably you know two of the younger guys in the in the side, so um, it should work out okay. I think. Speaking of of those other clubs, Nashville will see Toronto. Uh, Wednesday night, uh, we've seen you know obviously Vancouver go to Real Salt Lake and and have a tough time with the, with a late loss there. Uh, you know the numbers would tell us that Montreal is the best Canadian team so far this year. Um, subjectively, do you believe that as well of the three that Montreal is, is far and away the best? And if so, would that have surprised you coming into this season to say that a few games in? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a bit of a funny season for the three Canadian clubs because I expected Vancouver to improve, and I think they have. They have beaten us as well, 2-0. And yeah. It was a game that I didn't think we should have lost, but but we did. Um, we have beaten Toronto. I thought I didn't have a good feeling when Chris Armas came into the Toronto uh, job because I just didn't think it was a fit, and there's a lot of things not working out very well down there at all. So, um, again, though, when, when we play them at we we played them at the start of the season and they they were missing quite a few players i think when we play them at full strength again they're still going to be a formidable opponent um and i think they can only improve and and yes i suppose if you look at the numbers you'd have to say that montreal have performed best of the three canadian clubs but right now i i would say the three of them are all on a fairly on the same plateau really it's it's about fairly level between all three of them although toronto are the ones that are struggling most and uh, there's a lot of people in Montreal not too disappointed about that. Uh, which Montreal player would you say has been the best story so far this year? I know we've talked about Toy and, and his emergence. Is it him? Is it somebody else on this club that, that maybe you didn't expect to contribute at the level he is? Well, it, it's probably Toy. And, and I, I hesitate because we haven't seen him just as much uh, as we'd like to because of the injury. Um, but when he's been there uh, and given his goal a game record, you kind of have to highlight that. But also Kamal Miller, who came from Orlando City. Now, Kamal has been injured the last couple of games too. And uh, he actually missed the Canadian World Cup qualifiers through injury also. Um, but he's someone that plays in the left side of a back three. And um, he, he's definitely one uh, that, that that's worthy of mention because he's he's had a good start to the season. Zach Brogiar had a very good start this season. He scored against you guys, if you remember. Mm -hmm. um, his form has tapered off a little bit, but um, I expect him to come back uh, nice and strong as well. So for me, those those would be the three rather than just naming one because I don't think there is a one one standout to be honest. Well, we have the advantage of watching these teams on film against each other this year, and it might give us a template for what to expect on Saturday. Do you think the match will proceed similarly to what we saw in that match? Or given the early goals, did that kind of send things into a crazy frenzy that, that, that is not replicable? Yeah. You know? Yeah, 2 0 is a funny lead. And, you know, Montreal went into a 2 0 lead that day and kind of, you know, fell backwards. And, and um, you guys put the pressure on and played the way you do. And it's a, you know, it's a much, much more interesting Nashville side to watch this year than, than what I remember watching last year when, it, when I felt they, were, they played very negative football. But, you know, I, I thought um, probably before the second half um, of the first game, um, your guys kind of threw everything into attack and they were pretty much attacking incessantly. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought the performance was, was good. Plenty of crosses going in. You were obviously looking for Jonder Cadiz as well, who always gives us trouble. I think he scored maybe twice against us in two games, possibly. If he hasn't, he's certainly given us trouble in the first game. I can't remember who scored your goal last year. Um, but Randall Leal is is another player who who impresses me and and one that 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 Montreal needs to get the grips with also. Yeah, so that that was my my final question. Then, which matchups will you be focusing on Saturday, and where will this game be won and lost? Well, I think that's that's you know, I mean, our our centre backs, our three guys at the back. I don't know if Kamal Miller is going to be fit, um, but it's probably going to be uh, Camacho, who's actually had a good season too, and he he is someone who's been much maligned previously um so i don't know whether miller's going to be there uh, if not it's it's um it'll be struna on the right side it'll be camacho in the middle and it'll be waterman in miller's position now that concerns me a little bit especially mm. especially with the aerial threat that you guys can carry so you know that's going to be probably a problem it depends how much of the ball you get i think montreal's best um 
best form of defense in this game will be to possess the ball. Um, so I'm ho hoping that that's going to happen because I'm a little bit concerned about our back three against your attack. Uh, at the same time where Montreal can win the game, I expect Mason Toy, if he can keep his goal of game record going, um, that that's rise for optimism. But the thing about the game being after a two, three week break, you just don't know what way players are going to react after that three week break. Um, mm -hmm. So it just adds the unpredictable un unpredictability of the occasion. And um, I think it's a hard one to call. I do fancy Montreal by the by the odd goal, though. Well, as someone who has spent a lot of time in Quebec, since my wife's family lives up there, I have to ask you, uh, favorite uh, Quebecois food delicacy, would it be poutine, smoked meat, meat pie, something else? Um, I love poutine, but probably once a year. <laughs> Fair enough. Carb -heavy. Probably once a year. Um, I, I, I like the smoked meat too, but um, the, the poutine is, is is great. But like I say, you can't be you can't be eating that every week. Uh, <laughs> it goes well accompanied by a weekend of workouts afterward, for sure. Well, a weekend of workouts, yeah. It's actually quite good after after a lot of beers as well. But you need <laughs> to be you need to be careful and resist it, right? Yep, absolutely. It is the favorite snack of the well lubricated. And you've mentioned before you love Tootsie's down here in Nashville. So hopefully, yep. once the border fully opens back up i guess it's it's next year at this point these two teams will meet again hopefully you can get down here and we can share a beer on the rooftop at tootsies it would be great it's been a long time since i've been down to tootsies great great little joint well we'll put it tentatively on the calendar paul thank you so much for uh, lending us your expertise today and best of luck to montreal this weekend no problem wes thanks a lot enjoy the game Nashville and Toronto, Wednesday, 7.30, Nashville and Montreal, Saturday evening. Let's try to embrace consensus yet again, or maybe we'll try to debate. Either way, it's the Embrace Consensus segment. Tim, what does success look like in this homestand? How many points does NSC need to get out of this five-match homestand? And before we get too deep into it, the teams they're playing, Toronto, Montreal, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Chicago. The bare minimum that you feel good coming out of this is nine points, either three wins or two wins and three draws. More realistically, I think any loss in this stretch has to be a disappointment. There simply aren't any world beaters on the slate. This isn't your one-year-older brother's Philadelphia Union team. We saw that Atlanta is vulnerable even at home. They'll certainly be vulnerable in Nissan Stadium. So I think three wins and, and two draws or, or four wins and one draw is probably the standard for keeping pace with where Nashville wants to be. So I think at a bare minimum, I think 11 points is the only thing that will really make you start feeling good. Yeah, especially when you consider that 10 of the last 13 matches this season are on the road. I think Nashville needs to exceed acceptable and, and talk about a good to great performance here. I would say 10 is your good line here. Split. No, it's 11. Let's fight. <laughs> I mean, you know, marginal, <laughs> marginal line here. Uh, I think, you know, three wins and a draw, you have to allow for a loss. And I think, you know, Atlanta or Philadelphia, one of them is more than capable. And all these teams are capable of coming in and, and sneaking away with a win at Nissan Stadium. But I think Atlanta and Philadelphia are your draw slash loss candidates. You draw one of those, you lose one, and you say, hey, you know, spillage, it's going to happen. I think they have to win against Toronto and Montreal. I think they, they really mm -hmm. need six points this week to set that foundation. And I think Chicago really needs to be a win. If you've beaten those three teams and you're at nine points, get one draw out of that. And I think you can avoid disappointment and put yourself in pretty decent position. 10 points out of 15 would be two points per game. You get two points per game at home all season long, and, and you're looking at being a, a pretty elite team if you can steal a few draws on the road. And Nashville's not in the neighborhood of the elite right now, but the margins are so thin that they're not far off. Yeah, and I think the fact that they're not in the ranks of the elite right now means they have the ground to make up. And that is why I think it's a little bit higher than you do, just mm -hmm. so we can have some sort of argument. <laughs> We're not constantly <laughs> uh, having a precise consensus. But I think because they've put themselves behind the eight ball, not not necessarily the loss at Red Bull on Friday, but the draw against Cincinnati, the first draw against Montreal, the draw against Miami, are games that you don't want to have happen at home and they need to make up some of this ground. Nashville and Toronto, Wednesday night, Montreal Saturday. Getting into the mailbag. Uh, John Cade asks, was the loss to New York a symptom of international duty or injuries, or was it an issue with an uncertain game plan? We've talked about whether it was a symptom of the international duty and injuries and said, yeah, you can attribute a little bit to that. 
But but John's calling into question the game plan here in a way that I don't think either you or I have. Was was that the issue or was it execution? Obviously, in a loss, all of the above comes together. But I don't think it was necessarily as big of a problem with the game plan. I think the game plan was really clear. It was force a Red Bull team that hates to possess the ball to hold onto the ball for as much as possible. Um, you get hit on a weird counter-strike set-piece deal, and it really changes the tenor of the game and, and kind of broke Nashville SC's psyche. And that's where the midfield depth and the lack of Jean Dercati's um, really kind of started to to wear on Nashville and, and make it into the result that it ultimately was. And the, the stat that was hovering around, I think you shared and some others before that match, Red Bulls coming into that match was 9-0-1 in its first ever meeting with MLS expansion teams. Nashville, not just any expansion team in its second year also, but nonetheless, the first time you see that press, you can plan all you want for it. But as they say, everybody has a plan until they get pressed in their own third. Question from Andrew Yarbrough. Excited to see Jose Donaciano get some time on the pitch, but how is he more match ready than Pinheiro? Is is the NCAA better at developing talent specific to what MLS wants, or is this a testament to Jose's progression and his abilities? I'm going to be kind of a Debbie Downer on this one because it's it's been my character on the, on the <laughs> Pinheiro situation, but I've warned even before he signed that the fan expectations for him were kind of out of line with reality. He's a very nice prospect for the future, but he never really had the look of a guy who was going to contribute right away in MLS. He was a solid every game player for the worst team in Uruguay. It's, while he was on the books at Peñarol, um, he was not playing for Peñarol and, and doing the sorts of things that we've seen out of guys coming from that country in the past. I'll use an analogy from the day job, which is I think most people know is, is football recruiting at the college level. And he's a top 100 recruit, but one of those top 100 recruits who's kind of going to take a redshirt year and maybe a little bit of playing time during his redshirt freshman season in order to develop. And a guy like Denasiano is a top 250 recruit who's closer to game ready, but might not have that top, top ceiling. He is He's the more game ready, but not necessarily the higher ceiling guy, although I'm also very high on Cozy's uh, long-term potential too. And there seems to be a lot of optimism around Cozy's athleticism as well. I, you know, when you say mm-hmm. top 250, I think when it do- double emphasize what you've said there, which is that he's still a you know elite level type of talent your beloved vols are getting none of these guys man so it's, it's, we it's really have to bring tennessee football into this we have our biggest success athletically in a decade going to the college world series and you got to bring it over to football yeah that's right i don't know what these guys even look like anymore so i'm glad uh, mr virginia tech coverage over here i mean they're not doing much with the recruits but at least you're getting to cover a few of them it's a weird time in football recruiting too actually tennessee is recruiting pretty well i just have to get my ribbage in while i can well i mean you recruit great when you allegedly hand out mcdonald's bags of cash to people on campus so you know that doesn't doesn't hurt either <laughs> Braden gall weighing in the proprietor of the 440 sports network says with the euros being as great as they are and copa leaving a bit to be desired will there ever be an america's tourney north central and south how would it work how can i make this happen by screaming on twitter for some of the readers who don't quite have the base of knowledge that Braden does the euros are the the top international competition within the European continent. That's all the, the countries within um, UEFA, which is the European uh, organizing body. In North America, that body is called CONCACAF. In South America, that body is called CONMEBOL. There have been rumors about those two confederations merging over the years. I don't think a ton of credibility to many of those rumors, but at times, uh, CONMEBOL's top, top uh, competition, which is called Copa America, which is going on right now. That's what Braden is referring to, has been a sampling of the best from CONCACAF and CONMEBOL. Um, Copa America Centenario in 2016 is the most obvious example, but more consistently in the past, Mexico has ha- was for a very long time always invited to Copa America. The U.S. Mm-hmm. has been a regular guest team. I think the logistics are too complicated to make it a regular occurrence. There are so many um, nations, in, especially in the Caribbean, that don't have the financial heft to make that sort of thing happen. They cannot physically make a tournament like that uh you know travel and and housing their team and all those sorts of things but i think something that that you could see and could be interesting would be like the top eight in south america where there are only 10 teams three north american teams so u.s canada and mexico and then maybe the best five others from Concacaf, whether that's central america which would almost certainly include costa rica and the caribbean which would almost certainly include a team like jamaica for example i think a sort of 16 teams combined event that's a, a supercopa of sorts could be a really cool event either hosted by a single country or 
something like a, a U.S. in the in the North American region and and somebody like Argentina or Brazil in the South American region and and do that every so often. Maybe every couple Copas, every couple Gold Cups could be that. I would like that idea. I, I'm not a fan of the tradition of guest teams at some of these tournaments. I don't like that Qatar is going to be playing in the Gold Cup. I don't. And, and other than I don't like, the, I don't like that Qatar is going to be playing in the World Cup, much less hosting. No, <laughs> gosh, no, certainly. I, that that yeah, we have a permanent gr- grudge against Qatar on this podcast for sure for the many reasons that we all know but but even mexico getting invo- invited to copa america like the the random nature of it i like consistent history with these with these tournaments and and so i would enjoy something that was that was codified the question for me of course is do you add another one to the calendar you're not you know going to bastardize copa america and and totally change that by permanently introducing concacaf teams to it and i don't think you're going to add another tournament uh, to the calendar but you know what? I think that the mentality these days in FIFA circles is more soccer is always better. More teams are always better in these tournaments. So I'm likely to be proven wrong, and Braden might actually get what he wants here uh, one of these days. I'm on Team Braden for this one. I think it would be really cool. It would be fun. I'd watch it. I'd get into it for sure. I just wonder, like, are you are you killing Copa America to make it happen? And how's that going to go over down in South America? I don't know. A couple of, of bigger picture questions from Will Reiner's. Uh, this one is the biggest picture we could possibly ask. I think, what are John Ingram's goals for the club and city over the next decade? So in 30 seconds, Tim discussed. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> he, he's building the largest soccer-specific stadium in MLS. So is the goal having CONCACAF qualifiers there, big USMNT matches, or another decent concert venue? I'll add one to Will's great question. Is it a, a, a permanent or temporary home down the road for Vanderbilt football? Uh, which has close ties to the Ingram family as well. What what is what's the long term intention here? Yeah, I think certainly non soccer or at least non MLS revenue is in the plans. They've been pretty open that concerts are going to happen at that facility outside of MLS season, maybe midweek during MLS season. There's every intention of making this club one of MLS's consistent contenders and, and continental competition is in the vision, a version of Sporting Kansas City that spends more when it's established and counts as venue, not just the club as the community touchstone. I think Nashville SC's uh, to be named stadium is supposed to be something that the community can gather at, whether that's for a concert, whether that's in the future for an NWSL team. I don't think that Vanderbilt football will move there. There was obviously like kind of some political jockeying despite John Ingram's love for Vanderbilt. It doesn't seem like it's something that's in the cards at least not anytime soon so all of these you know reaching all these goals of, of being such a key part of the community is obviously very lofty but i think that's absolutely what ingram is aiming for love to see the tennessee high school football state championship games moved there at some point down the road i think it's the right size venue for something like that and it gets a it is, non-traditional it's like the right there. season too it's just after mls season most years so yeah it's awesome. not going to destroy the the pitch you can you know just kind of refurbish that after soccer season and uh, i think that could be fun um as long as you're not hosting MLS Cup there, which might end up being the conflict. So it'd be a great one problem. Of, one have. of the few times that I went to to Bridgeview, Illinois, to go to, uh, at the time, Toyota Park, I don't even know if it's still called that, now that the fire doesn't play there, but was to cover a high school football tournament, mm-hmm. uh, which was a very cool experience. On that same subject, Will Reiner's with the, with the two-parter here. How does the very successful return of NASCAR to Nashville impact the fairground stadium and track issues? And if you're not following racing, NASCAR went to Gladeville to the Nashville Super Speedway on Father's Day weekend and uh, had a nice sellout 40,000 crowd there. Ultimately, there are three pieces of this. It's the NASCAR stadium out in Wilson County. It's the potential for NASCAR to return to the fairgrounds. And it's the Nashville soccer situation at the fairgrounds. I don't think... Either of the NASCAR situations really affect Nashville SC at this point. Aside from the occasional, there's not going to be you know scheduling conflicts because we're putting NASCAR one weekend and Nashville SC the other weekend. But really, the the conflicts between those and and certainly the idea that the super speedway ultimately affects Nashville SC would be on such a minimal scale that I think basically it's settled business at this point. Moving along to outside in. Major League Soccer is launching a second division that will begin play. In 2022, a new league that, quote, completes the professional pathway between our academies and the MLS first teams. That's what MLS said in a press release. They call it one of the most ambitious projects in the history 
of Major League Soccer, a highly competitive league for rising stars, they say, as I'm just reading from the press release here. But several MLS teams, maybe as many as 20 or 22, are reported to be considering putting a second team in this division. So, Tim, I guess first off, tell us a little more about what you think this league is going to look like when it launches in March of next year, and then let's talk about whether Nashville SC might get involved. Yeah, I think the most interesting thing is going to be the effect that it has on USL. Obviously, MLS and USL have gotten along pretty well in the past. There hasn't been an official relationship for about three years now, but there's plenty of, of exchange of ideas. There are MLS two teams currently playing in USL, both in the championship and in USL's League One, which is a third division league, the, the, the level of the pyramid that this league would be playing in. So certainly I think that's probably the most interesting thing. And I, I think um, when, what we've seen in the past, back when there was an MLS reserve league, um, kind of those players traveled with the MLS teams and the MLS teams played each other and then the MLS reserves teams played each other on Sunday mornings. So you're probably not going to see that. You're going to you're going to see a form of this league that wants to be not necessarily um, the most popular thing in the country, but something that's a bit more of a spectator sport, something that is a true professional league and not necessarily just a developmental tool. It'll be something in between. So that obviously brings up the the next question that most Nashville SC fans are going to be asking. Do you see this as something that the club could be a founding member of in 2022? Or because the academy is still young and, and coming along, is it maybe a little bit preliminary for us to think that Nashville would be involved in year one? Yeah, I'll look behind door B there. Um, this is a this is a very slow build for the NSC Academy. It's slowed down because of the pandemic over the past year. They're planning to field a U-17 team next year. I would not anticipate that they try to accelerate some of the acquisition of homegrown players from outside the NSC Academy system just to make this happen. Obviously, in the long run, Nashville will want to participate this in, in this league. They will want to be able to home grow talent and then ultimately sell that talent on, whether within the league or to make profit by selling players overseas. But for the time being, because of the way Nashville has been built so far and because of the way the pandemic kind of slowed down some of that stuff, it really will be something that's going to take a couple of years to get true involvement from the boys in gold. And I can understand that. It's a club that's mm-hmm. tried to avoid putting itself in uncertain situations where it can when, when, when it comes to evaluating prospects when it comes to who it's signing uh, they, they make they make safe decisions and they they like to get the lay of the land i think it could be smart to sit back in 2022 see what this league becomes see you know how it's run and then decide whether to keep loaning guys out as they have been or to to invest in a, in a team in this league as the academy comes up anything else you want to talk about as we as we continue outside in? Um- yeah, just the, the continuation of Jandarkadis not playing for Venezuela and Copa America. Once again, did not make the squad Sunday afternoon. That's obviously something that's that's significantly disappointing for him. Um, hopefully we'll see if it kind of facilitates a return to Nashville a little bit sooner than we expected. Stadium talk as well. Ian Ayer hosted a, a press conference recently, late last week, talking about the new stadium and ticket prices also came out, which I think in my perspective, at least were, were extremely low compared to what mm-hmm. they could have been, or, or maybe were projected to be. And you had a good chat with Ian about that as, as part of that press conference. I feel like this club has not necessarily always put its money where its mouth is when it talks about wanting to be a club for the community. And the ticket price conversation was such a refreshing turn. And I think Ian is aware that the club kind of doesn't always have the most positive reputation in some of those regards. And he's very, very committed to changing that reputation. The pricing conversation was a really big piece of that. And I think going forward, um, you're going to see a a club that, that really does put its belief into wanting to be a more inclusive, more open to being accessible to everyone in, in the Nashville area. We're getting into the final whistle, some content that we've been taking in. We try to have recommendations each week for you. I've got one. As, uh, I just started an audio book a few weeks ago. It's a book called The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most Disruptive Force in Sports. If you listen to this podcast, you have at least been exposed to EPL on NBC, if not perhaps uh, invested in a team, as both of us have. The history of it, though, is relatively recent and, and quite fascinating, and there are elements of it that, that I had no clue about. For instance, the degree to which the marketing and format of the NFL influenced these modern owners in the EPL, and not just the American ones who also own American teams, even before they were on the scene. So many of these Premier League owners, as they were starting to form this new exclusive first division, went over to the United States and studied what uh, NFL clubs were doing. And it took that back. So when we talk about being purists over here when it comes to soccer, it's a bit ironic to me because so many of the purest of the pure clubs that that people refer to in that situation are taking so many of their lessons 
from our National Football League. Yeah, I have always thought that's interesting. And it's funny when you do hear British people uh, complain about the American owners kind of corrupting their game. I'm like, oh, man, might want to look in the mirror here and there. Um, so that, yeah, that's always an interesting, uh, especially, you know, the globalization of, of communication has made that sort of thing, something that's so much more prevalent in terms of, you know, the cross pollination of ideas. I always think that stuff is fascinating, but my recommendation is a book. I think you might've recommended this one of our first couple episodes. It's Bobby Warshaw's book. When the dream became reality. Um, as I mentioned previously, I, I cover high school football recruiting uh, into college as my day job. And so kind of following the stories of individual athletes is always fascinating to me and Bobby, who a lot of people recognize as a, a former voice on MLS's extra time podcast. Um, he's now in the in the big data consulting world in his sports in his sports function. So that's something that's a, pre, a pretty cool opportunity for him. But his journey um, as a guy who was supposed to kind of pan out maybe a little bit better than his on field career ended up doing. And he's very open and honest about um, kind of some of the things that went wrong along the way, some of the things that went right along the way too. always appreciate the stories, the the how and the why behind the what it's really easy to get bogged down in treating players like commodities, but learning about journeys such as Bobby's is certainly, certainly fascinating. Any bold predictions for this week? Yeah, I think, I think it has to be two Nashville wins. I don't know exactly how it'll happen. Haven't dug into either team in, in a ton of depth just yet, but knowing where Nashville is in, in terms of its development as a team in 2021 and, and kind of a longer range development and seeing how that compares to Toronto and how that compares to maybe a little bit of a rebuild and unexpected rebuild in Montreal, have to think it's got to be a six point week. I think that is definitely the aspiration and the expectation of many supporters as well. I will say, I think Nashville will score in the first half of both matches. I think that they're going to come out attacking uh i think that a, a team like toronto hadn't quite figured out its press yet and uh, can be vulnerable in the back end as a result of over committing and i think montreal is a team that nashville showed especially in that second half is a team they can manipulate in the attack even if they're not going to be you know putting up as many shots as they did in that first meeting trying to, to come back so i think goals in the first halves of each of those matches and then we'll see what happens from there because this defense has been a little leakier this year than last and uh, certainly something they will hope to correct wednesday toronto saturday montreal next tuesday another episode of club and country where we will break it all down thank you so much for listening thanks to moon taxi for the music espn 94.9 for the radio highlights be sure to rate review subscribe tell a friend and follow us on twitter thanks to the 440 sports network for keeping us around and until next match so long so long